I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Train Happy Troopers, and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast with me, Tally Rye. This week, I am discussing a fairly sensitive topic, actually, something that resonates with me and something that I think more of us would benefit from having a better understanding of and that is the topic of eating disorders and disordered eating. Now this is a sensitive topic and some of us might not be in the right headspace to listen to this episode but I was really grateful to today's guest Dr. Jenna Daku, a psychotherapist specializing in disordered eating, to have this conversation with me around what eating disorders are and why we have them, why we may develop them. And also we're answering one of the common questions that I get a lot, which is how do you find a therapist and how do you find that support and help you need? Because you know, when we talk about, often talk about a disordered relationship with food and everything, and we get into this in the conversation, is that we often think it is only about food, only about our body, only about exercise, and really there's a huge emotional component that we need to address and acknowledge, and um, that's what we kind of get into discussing today. But before we do that, it is time for our train happy trooper of the week. Cue the music. So for this week's train happy moment of the week, I wanted to do something a little bit different because I actually did a little shout out on my Instagram asking for people to share their train happy moments last week. And I was overwhelmed with how many people responded and how many great examples there were of train happy moments that I felt like they needed to be shared and you needed to hear them. So I'm just going to give you some highlights um, because I think you're going to feel really encouraged by some of these. I'm going to keep everyone anonymous because they didn't specifically write into the podcast, but I'm just going to read out a selection. So I really like this one. Emerging from a very rough mental health dip, completed three short yoga sessions this week. Someone got a deadlift personal best of 140 kilos. Very impressive, very impressive. Hiking up a very long, steep incline to find the perfect shot, but loving it instead of hating it. Yes, I think when we start to really appreciate those moments, that's when we know we're moving into train happy territory. This other one, indulgently long walks in the evening because the sunset is so beautiful. Someone else ran for 30 minutes with a podcast. It was so slow and nice. Hoping it was the Train Happy podcast. And one more. I felt really anxious today, so jumped on the spin bike with some awesome 80s music and sung. I love that. And I have to say, the benefit of working out at home is you do get to sing out loud. 
I'm saying that from absolute personal experience. So if you would like to email in your train happy moment this week uh, to be read out on the podcast, feel free to keep it anonymous if you would like to. Then send them into trainhappypodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you do have any questions you would like to be answered on the podcast in our Q&A episodes, then please also do send that into trainhappypodcast at gmail.com. And I'm going to specifically ask if you have any Christmas related questions. We have a Christmas special coming up and I want to make sure that we are covering the topics that you want to be spoken about. So please do get in touch with those. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jenna Deku. Hi Jenna, welcome to the Train Happy podcast. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm I you know we are in the midst of lockdown as we're speaking, um, and I have a confession. I only found out what the term Groundhog Day meant like last week. I it's like one of those phrases that I just had heard people say. And I only realised that it means that you're living the same day every day. And I have been feeling that that is what's been going on this time round. It just feels so, like, quite monotonous, quite samey. But conversations like this are fantastic because I get to interact with other people and it's lovely. So <laughs> I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Um. So I wanted to have you on today because you are a psychotherapist specializing in disordered eating and eating disorders. Um, and I I, th- I think this is something that more people struggle with than we, than we realize. Um, and so I really wanted to have a conversation on the podcast about this, especially as we're going into like the festive season. But before we get into everything, I would love to know um, how you ended up doing what you do. And maybe there are a few extra bits, like there are some blanks I missed that you need to fill in. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear about how you became a psychotherapist and um, how you came to specialize in the eating disorder field. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I think being someone who identifies as a woman and growing up in a Western culture that is just saturated with diet culture, especially, you know, growing up in the nineties and the, and the noughties. I mean, I definitely had my own struggles with body image and food and coming to terms with that in my teens and and my twenties. And I think that's what really sparked my interest in working with disordered eating. Um, and so then I went on to study eating disorders in particular. Um, so that's what I did my postgraduate degree in. Um, so that's what I wrote my doctoral thesis on. And yeah, I, I mean, I kind of have, I'm pretty fortunate in that I've always known, I think, that I wanted to be a therapist since I was probably 17 or 18. I had an, I had an idea that that was something that really interested me, just talking to people, hearing people's stories. I've always been really interested in, um, in that kind of thing so um it just kind of felt like a natural progression for me to kind of move on to study counseling and psychotherapy and so I moved from Canada in 2010 to start studying in Edinburgh and um finished that after it took me about four years and then I graduated um a year later and yeah the first job that I had coming out of uh studying was at an eating disorders clinic a private one and that was pretty, pretty full on, pretty intense. Um, it was a really, really 
big learning experience for me and I loved it I thought it was it was great of course it was quite stressful at times I think seeing people who are you know really distressed and really struggling with their relationships with food and their bodies and other people Um, but I think I'm really really grateful for that experience and from there I kind of branched out and started my own practice um, which has been when did I start that 2016 maybe Um, so it's been about four years and just been growing and loving it and um, and having having as much fun as I can with it Um, but I mean obviously with the caveat you know I work with eating disorders and disordered eating but I am very careful about who who I take on because I think being in private practice um, there's only so much I can do and I think there's admittedly really big gaps in the eating disorder treatment that is offered especially in the UK so I tend to kind of end up or we tend to work we tend to work a lot with with people who are kind of in in between or end up being in between treatment NHS treatment or on waiting lists for NHS treatment um um, and then individuals who have disordered eating who might not necessarily qualify for any for certain levels of NHS treatment but um, are struggling just as much so yeah what kind of therapy is it that you practice I think I um, in my research um, it said that you did uh, like a, a psychodynamic style I just wondered if you could give us a little insight into what kind of therapy that is and what that means yeah, absolutely. So psychodynamic is kind of, I guess the easiest way to describe it is like it's derived from like a Freudian psychotherapy, but it's less intense. Um, and the style of therapy that I predominantly, like I guess the foundation for how I work is relational psychodynamic, which means that I focus on the relationship that forms between me and my clients. And I work with it in the room, in sessions, well, room online now, mm-hmm. but um, in in sessions kind of as it comes up. So I might offer people feedback about how I'm experiencing them in the here and now um, and what's coming up for me in my body, what's coming up for me and how I'm experiencing them. Uh, and the psychodynamic element in particular, I guess, just refers to um, investigating and looking at how the past has an impact on the present. Uh, So that means kind of going back and talking about things that might not necessarily feel relevant initially, but then as we dig around and we look and we start to make connections, we notice patterns in behavior, we notice patterns in relationships, we notice patterns in, in so many things, because I think a lot of our behavior, a lot of our thoughts are unconscious, like we don't really have access to them. And so a big part of the way that I work is kind of bringing those things, trying to bring those things that are unconscious and make them conscious so that people can then decide what they want to do with it. So it's like building the awareness, that self-awareness of why you are the way you are and how you are, if that makes sense. I've done a year of psychodynamic therapy and it's interesting that you, like the way you described kind of talking about things that feel absolutely unrelated and then suddenly the penny drops and you're able to join some dots up and it's like a big like 
oh moment like that makes total sense of course that's what it was um and specifically an example of that is my relationship with food and exercise and the way I became extremely controlling over that and I've spoken about this quite a few times now um as a result of grief that I just Mm. hadn't ever dealt with and you know just I never I never thought me losing my dad and then four or five years later, me becoming very controlling around food and exercise were linked because it felt very in the now of that time of my life. But mm. then looking back, I'm kind of like, ah, oh, I see, I see. And um, it's so interesting. And, and I want to get into that today, but in terms of of how we draw the dots to how we, you know, why we behave the way we do around food and exercise and where this need to necessarily control and um, comes from. Cause I, I find that personally interesting. And I think um, I remember having a conversation a few years ago with um, Kimberly Wilson, psychologist mm-hmm. who did another podcast that I did. And we were having this conversation and she was like, yes, often, you know, it's a, a previous trauma in life or something that's happened. And I remember like, with my friends, our jaws dropping because we were like, and with another person in the room who had had a clinical eating disorder being like, what? We've never had that explained to us. And I think that is a part missing part of the information because I think we're so, we think everything is just about the food, just about body image, just about diet culture. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting is how diet culture influences us to behave a certain way the underlying reason that we're behaving that way I don't, I don't know but we'll get into it we'll get into it because I think it's it's really interesting so we'll start with I think let's define what an eating disorder is versus disordered eating because I think there are differences um and so I'd love to hear from your perspective um what how you define an eating disorder and maybe certain specific eating disorders yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is this is an area that, admittedly, I think um, is my perspective might be perceived by some as a little bit controversial, because I prefer to see eating disorders and disordered eating on a spectrum, mm-hmm. rather than differentiating and separating them. Because I think that's one of the really big um, stigmatizing aspects of do of eating disorders and disordered eating is that, you know, if I haven't received a diagnosis, if I'm not, you know, clinically, I don't clinically have anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder, then I'm not that sick, quote unquote, right? And then that just leads to tremendous problems in that, you know, folks don't seek treatment, um, they don't seek support when when it's kind of earlier on in the process. And, um, and so then they end up potentially developing a full-blown eating disorder um, and then they get access to treatment but it's a lot more difficult because it's much more established um, so I prefer to see it as a spectrum and on one end of the spectrum um, well, I guess outside of the spectrum you've got kind of an intuitive relationship with food um, which isn't which I understand to be at least not not super influenced by outside factors so it's not driven by rules it's not driven by um dictated by any kind of regulations per se it's just kind of driven by your body and what your body is telling you um 
And then we've got dieting, which is a form of disordered eating because it takes you away from that intuitive relationship with your body and with food. For example, in order to diet, you have to ignore your hunger and your fullness signals. Like you just have to. So you, it just takes you away from your body. Um, and then from there, you've got like a whole range of behaviors that intermix with the kind of clinical um, diagnostic criteria for eating disorders. Um, so you've got things like compulsive exercise, restriction, um, cutting out entire food groups, um, becoming preoccupied and obsessed with um, quote-unquote healthy eating or eating in a particular way, experiencing enormous guilt and shame around eating certain foods, um, judging your body really harshly, um, and then kind of engaging in social behaviors that are withdrawing really from social behaviors um, in order to in order to engage and maintain that kind of relationship with food. And of course, there's a whole bunch of other other stuff in there too that everybody experiences it slightly differently. Uh, but for me, a clinical eating disorder would be, you know, if you if you tick the the criteria for for having an eating disorder, um, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders or Mental Illness. Um, and so for like anorexia, I mean, and I will caveat this by saying that there's big problems. I think there's big problems with the way that eating disorders are um, diagnosed and those cri- the criteria that they're based on. Because, for example, anorexia, I believe, in the current DSM is still one of the main characteristics is weight loss. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always happen in folks with anorexia. And I think it's um, – and to refer to somebody with anorexia who doesn't lose, quote-unquote, enough weight as having atypical anorexia, that comes with a whole host of problems because there's almost implications that it's – and I'm using air quotes again, but not, you know, quote unquote, not as bad as anorexia or, um, you know, feelings of, of failure can kind of come up. Um, and it just gets really, really complicated and messy. So I tend to kind of stay away from from the, those kind of diagnostic criteria. But for some people, it is life saving. And some people it is absolutely necessary for them to kind of go see a psychiatrist or go to their doctor and for that person to kind of that professional to go through and tick all the boxes and say you have clinical anorexia or you have clinical bulimia or you have clinical binge eating disorder because it kind of for some people that can be really helpful in terms of helping them to come to terms with the fact that you know what they're what they're experiencing is really serious and life-threatening um, and other people don't necessarily, you know, need need that as much, if that makes sense. Maybe need is the wrong word, but um, I think it's really important to kind of acknowledge that everybody's different. And so, but generally speaking, an eating disorder is um, when the, the, the symptoms and the behaviors of disordered eating become so severe that they inter- interfere with capacity to engage in daily life basically or they have a severe impact on physical health and that doesn't mean that um 
that doesn't mean that engaging in disordered eating doesn't have an impact on your life or it doesn't have an impact on your physical well-being and emotional well-being. It's just, it's kind of the severity of it, if that makes sense. Um, so that's kind of how I prefer to look at it rather than kind of categorizing it as you have disordered eating or an eating disorder. So I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> it did. And I think one of the big misconceptions, and I would love you to maybe speak more on this, is the idea that to have uh, an eating disorder, you must um, be emaciated and must present. And we often think of eating disorders as, you know, like super thin models. I, you know, I think the modeling industry or like ballet dancers or something like that. And usually those people are white and usually they're thin. Mm -hmm. And so you're right, a lot, of, a lot of people fly under the radar and therefore don't get the treatment they need because they aren't, you know, they aren't um, looking like the stereotypical version of an eating disorder. Um, yeah. And I think it's really um, important to say to people listening and in general that um, you your symptoms are valid and your you know your experience is valid and um you can experience these behaviors and thoughts um like you say without having this drastic weight loss um yeah. and it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be treated um and I also think it's really important and I really appreciated you talking about the spectrum of like being an intuitive eater to um, an eating disorder because I agree I think um, the minute we start bypassing our own hunger signals fullness signals our cues we stop listening to our body and we start outsourcing to other people and we stop um, you know trusting ourselves is when like that's um, that's not ha that's not the an intuitive and I want to use the word normal and I don't know if the word normal is right but you know it's not how we were designed to eat mm. um and so I think it's really important to say that there's a spectrum I want to talk about orthorexia yeah because my understanding is this isn't a formally diagnosable eating disorder within the um DSM-5 I think it is um that you said and so but I know that this is becoming a lot <clears throat> a lot more spoken about and we are talking about um, this as uh, as an eating disorder um, and it should be treated as such and I would just really appreciate maybe to just describe what orthorexia is and how it shows and presents itself yeah absolutely um, I, I kind of find it helpful to kind of almost not to kind of compare or put it mm. up against anorexia um, because there's there is crossover but it is different um, so somebody with anorexia might what well, is generally preoccupied with food um, might be preoccupied with things like um, calories or fat or macros or um, something like that and reducing the amount of intake that they are consuming um, they generally experience a lot of guilt and shame around food there might be kind of exercise behaviors in there as well and they have a, a real preoccupation with wanting to lose weight often and I say often because I mean I don't want to put people into boxes again because it does there are some variations um 
orthorexia is similar in a lot of ways because there is a, a preoccupation with food, but the preoccupation with food and the restriction that ensues because of it is because is due to um, wanting to eat healthy, wanting to eat clean, wanting to eat well, um, you know, not wanting to eat toxins, for example, or chemicals and stuff like this. And so it starts off from kind of a, from a foundation of wanting to be quote unquote healthy. Um, and I use air quotes there because I think our culture, diet culture, is just really steeped in the idea of like healthism. Um, and healthism means um, that, you know, a very particular and narrow idea of health is prized above all else. And if you don't meet that definition of health, then there's a lot of shame associated with it. So it's very moralized. And um, so with orthorexia, it kind of, it's kind of founded on healthism and then it, it tends to spiral. So somebody might decide that, you know, they're going to cut something out of their diet because they heard that it's not not good for them or that it's associated with a certain health condition. And then from there, they might start cutting out other items of food and they might start to become very preoccupied with, with eating a clean diet or a healthy diet. And then, so basically what happens is that their the range of food that they consume, you know, just becomes more and more narrow. And as a result, they tend to, so they're restricting. And so they end up eating less and less and less. And so they may not be necessarily, somebody with orthorexia might not necessarily be preoccupied with weight loss, but that could be an unintended um, consequence. And so that's kind of one of the physical symptoms, if you will, of of, um, orthorexia can be um, weight loss in some individuals. Um, but generally, I guess the biggest difference between anorexia and orthorexia is that preoc- like what the preoccupation is. Orthorexia is on health and cleanness and all of that cleanliness with food and everything. Anorexia tends to be um, kind of a preoccupation with with weight loss and restriction and eating less. And I, I personally rec- really um, see myself in the orthorexia definition in terms of my previous experiences with food and exercise and the desire just to be healthy Mm. and um and thinking and not necessarily being super focused on weight loss but thinking at the time that that was a nice byproduct um because diet culture taught me that that's what it was um but the the absolute goal was to just to just be healthy and that that for me meant not eating gluten, not eating refined sugar, not, you know, checking the ingredients of everything I ate. And I found it really interesting that you spoke about the idea of how this impacts your social life and then starting to prioritize eating and for me, the gym Mm -hmm. above social events. So, you know, I certainly, for me, this is like my kind of second and third year at drama school just slowly like not having so much of a social life and just spending all my evenings at the gym and um you know making sure and kind of not liking it if I didn't cook my meal if someone else cooked for me that was stressful and hard because Mm -hmm. I was in control of the ingredients um you know whether how much oil they used in the pan and all those sorts of things that that felt really difficult for me because I wasn't in control in that scenario and I would love to speak a bit about how this manifests on social media because I wonder if um 
And I don't know if this has become part of maybe the definition or something that people look for when they're working with people um, with orthorexia, this idea of um, creating perfect meals mm. and and meals that looked very picture perfect. So I think a, a big part of m- maybe my compulsion was everything I ate had to look pretty for Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, it had to be c- quite clean, healthy, you know, all the free, all the freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then it had to be like perfectly presented blueberries. And I like, I do these like porridge bowls and everything had to look like food porn. And then I'd post that. And then the validation I got was really big part of me continuing this cycle. Um, and I see this happening a lot in fitness in my, with, you know, with peers at the time, um, you know, how that, uh, whether that's necessarily part of the disorder or whether that's just a thing that kind of encourages and helps it to thrive is this external validation from people online who are like, wow, you make perfect pancakes. Like that's amazing. Um, and how that continues. And, and for one of the things I had to do to get better was like, A, not take a picture of anything I ate and B, make messy food. Yeah. And I remember, I remember going home and my brother saying to me like, oh, aren't you going to take a picture of that? And I was like, no, I don't take pictures of my food anymore. And whether I consciously did that, but I, I knew that that's what I needed to do to like be okay about this. Cause I realized like it was becoming something I had to do and I needed to just be able to eat without having to show anyone I was eating Mm. is this something you're seeing the social media element within that like maybe in clinic you're seeing that come up um more often absolutely uh I think one of the things that I normally get um my clients to do is at some point when it seems like they're ready (laughs) is to tackle their um social media feeds and to go through and basically uh anything that makes them feel like they have to kind of compare any um, anybody's profile that makes them feel less than not good enough um, or where they feel like they're really kind of comparing themselves to that person's profile in whatever way, be it fitness or food or, or just life in general. I encourage them to either mute it or um, unfollow that person and to kind of replace it with somebody who is you know, aligned with health at every size or somebody who has a different body shape, um, different skin color, whatever, um, just to create some diversity. Because I think the thing with social media is that it just, it it's a breeding ground for comparison. Mm. And one of the things with, with food that, and diet culture and the way that we kind of, that things get presented, I think on social media is there's how do I explain this there's there's layers to it like you said it's not just about food right it's what the food represents to us and so when we're scrolling through Instagram and we see that perfectly presented you know pancake with the perfect blueberries and you know it's very clean there's there's no mess you know it's clear that a lot of effort has gone into it but but beyond that below the surface there's a lot of assumptions and connections that we are making about that person and their life, or there tends to be at least, right? So, you know, somebody with a highly curated Instagram account, um, you know, might be perceived as having their life together, might be perceived as very successful, might be perceived as very happy or um, whatever, right? And so we project all of these ideas onto the person 
making the food. So it's not just about the food, right? Um, and I think that that's really important to kind of to kind of hold in mind. It's it's you know what what are these accounts saying about the people who've created them, and what assumptions are we making about about those individuals that might actually be be fostering kind of um, self comparison and leaving us feeling less worthy or not good enough in comparison. I think um, it's also interesting when we're thinking about maybe the person who has the account, what we project onto them. But I also mm-hmm. think it's interesting in in who that person presents themselves to be and how yeah. how in diet culture and particularly in this fitness wellness space online um, that I've inhabited for a long time. I, you know, now I always say like when you like, take the glasses of diet culture off and you kind of see again, you realize that how many people you looked up to for your health and fitness advice who now demonstrate, um, regularly demonstrate disordered behaviors, thought patterns, um, who, you know, who do, who completely normalize that, as you said. And I think that was what was so helpful about that idea of the spectrum of disordered eating, um, that how normalized disorder has become, and particularly mm-hmm. in fitness, this idea that um, it's normal to completely control everything about how you eat, and it's normal to comp- count every single calorie, and it's it's normal to, you know, not eat until the even, you know, save up calories for a, a meal, or it's, you know whether that's through like intermittent fasting or all these different practices, like this all has become extremely normalized. So that when you say like, uh, hang on a second, this, this ain't right. (laughs) Um, we don't necessarily see it because it feels like that's what healthy is. That's what pursuing health and fitness is. It's losing weight. It's counting calories. It's weighing your food. It's stepping on the scales. It's taking progress photos those mm. things are all normal, right? That's that's what being healthy and fit is, right? Yeah. And I think that's um, the problem with with and and the the mission is to change the narrative around that within the fitness space. That actually those things like pursuing health, pursuing fitness, does not have to mean weighing food on a scale. That, yeah. shouldn't, that doesn't need to come into the equation at all. Yeah. Um, and so I just, yeah, I wondered um, your thoughts on how normal this has become. Oh, it's, it's incredibly normal to the point that, I mean, putting political views aside, um, you know, that's one of the major issues with like public health policies in England in particular that kind of came out a few months ago. It's all about restricting restriction it's all about calorie counting it's all about weight loss and you know it's a very narrow approach to health which is what is what's problematic about it um so and again my mind is going in a whole bunch of different directions so I'm going to try and like pull it in um so that so that I can kind of string a coherent sentence together but I think you know having such a narrow definition of health is problematic on so many levels because it is not accessible to everybody. Um, so in order for somebody to eat clean, 
right? That involves eating, let's say, organic vegetables, which means you have to pay a lot more for vegetables and you have to live in an area where there, where you have access to that. And there is a large proportion of the population that cannot afford to, to eat that way and does not have access to food like that. Mm. So it's, it's hugely problematic. Um, you know, within that narrow definition, doing a certain level of exercise or a certain type of exercise, as I'm sure you're aware, is, you know, hugely problematic on lots of levels because, you know, not everybody is able to do that. Not everybody's body is able to do that for whatever reason, right? Not everybody can, also not every, everybody can afford a gym membership or, um, you know, to go to like really expensive yoga classes or anything like that, right? So there's huge problems with this. And I think that's that's one side of it. The other side is that it excludes, I mean, it basically maintains that health can only be achieved if your body is within a certain weight range as well, which is, again, massively fatphobic and stigmatizing and problematic. Um, so to say that, you know, to rely on BMI, for example, I mean, I could go off on a tangent about this, <laughs> I won't, but I mean, to rely on BMI is massively problematic because it doesn't account for things like muscle mass it doesn't account for things like um you know what like water retention and stuff like that and not to mention it was based on um something that a mathematics statistic statistician what <laughs> i can't Stat- say that word <laughs> but a statistics guy <laughs> yes <laughs> thank you some dude who focused on statistics and like you know a hundred years ago created this this map of numbers and weights that was based largely on white men. And now that that chart is being applied to everybody. And so, I mean, we can probably sit here and unpack all the problems with that, but, um, you know, that's just, I think it's just important for people to hold in mind um, as they kind of, as they think about it, that, you know, these, these things are very, very flawed um, and they're very rooted in a lot of, kind of sociocultural um, dynamics as well that are really important to understand that go beyond diet culture. Mm. Um, And so I think, you know, we're also kind of almost indoctrinated to the point that like, we don't really challenge it, right? So when you have the, you have a public health official and, you know, somebody in a position of power come out and say that, you know, if you're within a particular BMI range, you need to lose weight because you're putting strain on the public health system, you know, that's, that is just so, so problematic and so stigmatizing. And it just puts the onus on the individual rather than looking at, you know, the kind of the collective ways that we could improve health by improving access to foods, improving access to healthcare, reducing stigma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we had a really good conversation about this on the podcast um, that I think at the time of recording will have been the previous week's episode with um, Dr. Joshua. And we spoke about weight stigma and the medical setting and BMI and everything and how this is impacting um, and, you know, people who don't meet, like you say, the narrow criteria and how people aren't able to get the same the equal treatment that they deserve and the the equal access that they deserve as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important to bear in mind. I kind of mentioned briefly at the beginning of the episode and I want to get into this emotional aspect 
mm-hmm. of eating disorders and disordered behavior in general. Um, and, you know, whether that's the, um, the, the desire for weight loss perhaps and the, de- the desire to change the body and like where that's coming from emotionally and what that means. I think we, I do Q&A episodes on this podcast and I read out a fantastic poem by a um, body image kind of coach called Nina Manelson. And she wrote this really great poem called I Feel Fat. Mm -hmm. And it basically is a poem and it explains what that actually means and what that is. It says that that word is actually, the feeling fat part is actually a placeholder for emotions that we don't know how to describe and we don't know how to feel and we don't have a name for it. And so I would love to explore that a bit more and and talk about this where the drive where the emotional drive to engage in these behaviors and these thoughts and feelings about our body and food come from yeah and I think again my mind's getting pulled in a whole bunch of <laughs> directions so I'll try and kind of it's okay I'm really good I'm really good at I'm really good at like brain dumping questions so I apologize and it's something I'm working on people have commented on it I'm trying to get better at it but um to put it maybe to put it in a clearer question um it's not just about the food is it no it's not absolutely not and I think I'm I'm what where I'm leaning towards right now is thinking um maybe kind of giving an example of that kind of highlights how I think as as kind of a psychodynamic practitioner so when I when I think about this um, when I'm thinking about somebody's relationship with food, I'm also thinking about their relationship with their emotions. And if I'm thinking about their relationship with their emotions, I'm thinking I go back to what their relationships were like growing up um, and what the people in their life that they grew up with, what was modeled for them emotionally. Um, and so that's kind of, that's that's where my mind goes with this. So for example, if you have somebody who grew up in a family where, and this isn't in any way putting blame on the family by the way this is just kind of contextualizing and and this is done in a way to help people to understand mm. themselves um so I think that's really important but you know if you if you grew up in a family where you know people where where your parents for example or the people who are raising you didn't express their emotions very much or only express certain emotions or if you grew up in a family where certain emotions were just not allowed for example, like if if you weren't, if you felt like you couldn't be angry and you noticed that your parents, for example, were never angry or your caregivers were never angry, um, that could create kind of an idea in your mind that anger is unacceptable and you're not allowed to express your anger in relationships and to do so might feel really unsafe. So then you might grow up swallowing your anger and not expressing it, and not letting it out, but that doesn't mean that you don't feel it, because it's an emotion, and emotions are energy, and my understanding of them, at least, is that they they originate from within your body. We don't have control over our emotions, actually, contrary to popular belief, um, but, you know, how we react to them, and how we respond to them, is what we can learn to what we can learn to control and what we can do differently. So, you know, you grow up, you grow up, you feel that anger is unacceptable. And so what might tend, what might then start to happen is as you grow up 
and you have this anger that's kind of stored within you that you don't know how to express, it might then get redirected or turned inwards, right? Mm -hmm. And because, again, this is where the intersection with like personal history and personality and culture and social environment and all of that kind of mixes up together, is then you have this kind of perfect storm of being in a culture that demonizes certain bodies and moralizes certain ways of eating and certain ways of engaging with exercise and certain ways of looking and presenting yourself to the world. And so the anger might get directed inwards and be projected onto your body. So instead of being, so instead of feeling really angry at, I don't know, I can't think of an example right now, but instead of being angry at your friend for whatever they did, you might then go home and find yourself really compulsively exercising, for example. Um, And of course, that's going to release some of the anger. But what you've done is you've taken the anger towards your friend and you've projected it onto your body and you've gone and you've you've released some of it, but you haven't actually processed that emotion. It's just going to kind of stay inside of you, for example. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And, you know, often kind of my advice now for people wanting to talk about body image or like having, you know, poor body image is like, okay, that's a signal. That's, that's a, that's an, that's a cue. That's like a point in the direction of something else that's going on here. And, um, you know, and that's something, that's something that is great if you're able to explore in that therapy relationship and and discuss that because often when I've had yeah when I'm having like low body image moments when I'm you know feeling you know diet culture starting to seem a little bit more appealing than usual I'm like hmm okay so what has happened recently that's made me feel this way because I know I don't want to do that but Mm. I know that this is because there's clearly an emotion that needs to be felt here or acknowledged and I haven't been acknowledging that and therefore I am just turning inwards rather than like you say able to get that release um and do you feel that being able to to understand that and and figure out what that emotion is for you whether it is anger for me it's um I find it really hard to just feel anything that's negative or sad or difficult. Mm. And, you know, being the glass half full positive thinker that I thought I was, um, being able to be sad has been like something I've had to learn, Um, you know, to, to, to let myself cry, to, to feel difficult, painful things. I don't want to feel them. I don't, I just want to feel happy all the time. So, you know, I, I can, um, that's something I've had to learn and that's something I've learned through therapy and I wonder if you feel that it's possible to start that process or become more curious about what those feelings represent um, for those people who may not be in a therapeutic setting right now who may not have access to therapy who can you know through other means start to kind of excavate that stuff yeah I think when that that question's interesting because I always kind of 
I feel like I have to caveat it by my answer by saying, you know, you have to do what feels right for you. Mm. And I think um, if you are conscious that those that you've got a lot of trauma or a lot of relational trauma, um, then exploring emotions on your own without the support of, you know, um, a therapeutic relationship and a therapist to kind of help guide you, that might not be particularly safe. Mm. Um, so, and I think it's interesting because the how we relate to emotions and our relationship with emotions fascinates me um and I definitely used to feel this way as well Mm. that there were certain emotions that were good and certain emotions that were bad right some were acceptable some were more difficult and I think understandably there are some emotions that make us feel very uncomfortable and that we understandably don't really want to feel shame isn't particularly pleasant you know grief sadness yeah, it's not particularly nice to feel those things. And yet, so what we've done is we've constructed this idea that those emotions are less acceptable and that we should do everything we can to avoid those emotions. And that's where the problem lies. But then we, it's, it's it fascinates me because then we, we've constructed this idea that it's the emotion that's bad, but it's not the emotion that's bad. It's how we relate to that emotion and the meaning that we put on that emotion mm. and what we do with that emotion, namely how much we try and avoid those difficult or quote unquote bad emotions that leads to problems. Um, do you think, um, speaking of like avoiding and maybe numbing those emotions, that's where people yeah. do rely on controlling food, controlling their, their aesthetics, their weight. And it also could be a sense of like relying on alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, all sorts of these different behaviors we use to kind of numb and avoid yeah. feel, feeling that that stuff yeah. we don't want to face. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see that you see the kind of avoidance, I, I suppose, in uh, restrictive behaviors with food wanting to kind of numb out, wanting to tune out, because basically when when we're in a state of restriction, we're starving our brains as well. So, um, and what tends to happen is that the, the prefrontal region of our brains shut down and that's responsible for higher level thinking um, because, and so it can feel like a bit of a relief almost and a release to not be engaging in like the depth of thinking that might be contributing to anxiety, for example. For some folks um but then also you see we we can see a, a sort of numbing or or um intention to kind of ground oneself through consuming large amounts of food or binging or mm. you know eating really kind of mindlessly um because you know what people tend to kind of describe to me at least is that that sensation you know they they're not focused on anything else in the moment when they're eating they're just focusing on that food and they can, they zone out. They almost dissociate a little bit from their bodies um, because that's what needs to happen in order to eat a very large quantity of food. You have to, you can't really connect with the discomfort because if you did, you might stop. Um, yeah. Have you seen the, I'm watching the most recent series of The Crown. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen the most recent okay. one. Well, it's really interesting because they are portraying Diana yeah. And Diana's literally like a princess locked in a tower. At what point she's like in this palace on her own, completely out of control of her surroundings. And she then binges on food um, because she can't, she's angry at the queen who she can't speak 
express her anger to because she's the queen. Um, mm. She's angry at Prince Charles because, um, and whether this is true or this is slightly their version, but th- yeah. the way they set it up is like, you know, she's completely, she's got no one to express her her feelings of like anger to and no no outlet for this emotion. And she feels completely neglected in that sense and so the one way she can find comfort and in that and you know she's completely out of control because everything's happening around her and she has seen seemingly has no say in her life anymore Mm. and I found it really interesting and then she kind of goes downstairs into the kitchen and they show her binging and then purging Mm. and I was sitting with my boyfriend and I was and I was kind of like well yeah of course she's gonna do that or she's going to do that because she's completely out of control in this scenario. She has no, the only thing she can control is what she's eating and what she's not eating and yeah. her body because every other decision is being made for her. So it, mm-hmm. it, like, sadly, it seems like that seems to her like the only option as a way to alleviate this, this um, mental distress. And, and, and I, I thought, I thought that was a really, I think they made like a really clear example of that and and how um, they didn't really seem to make it seem about this is a direct of poor body image. They made it seem like this is a direct action from loss of autonomy. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And um, in how, in how that was portrayed. And, and would you say that that is accurate or could could be accurate um and maybe why people do turn like to you say to food to dissociate to to get to get out of the scenario that they're in yeah I think I mean for some for some individuals absolutely I think that that can be the case um I think you know I'm finding it really interesting how the different portrayals of eating disorders in Mm. in kind of mainstream media and television and stuff like that are are shifting a focus away from anorexia and so we had like the Freddie Flintoff documentary yes. I don't know if you saw that I haven't seen it but I I want to I don't know what your thoughts were on it oh I thought it was brilliant um okay. I mean it, like you there's no perfect way to kind of portray eating disorders mm-hmm. because I think I mean there's always going to be issues but I think it was it was brilliant because it was you know it showed it highlighted how it's not just something that happens to women, you know, Mm. men and folks who identify as male really struggle with this as well. Um, And I think it was really well done in that it didn't kind of package it up all neat and tidy and go, okay, here's somebody who, um, you know, realizes that they have a, a problem or something needs to change and then they get support and they come out the other side and they're feeling fabulous which, you know, is inspirational, but, um, you know, I think they did a really good job of kind of staying with his ambivalence around, you know, do I, is this really a problem? Do I need to do something about this? Do I not? Do I seek support? Do I not? Um, And I think it's brilliant in that that kind of tends to mirror like what happens for a lot of folks is that, you know, people tend to have this innate sense that something's not right and it doesn't feel good. And, things feel the irony with eating disorders is that like it's it is about control but you completely lose control right Mm. um so you know so diana for example may have been binging and purging to try and push down some of that anger and get rid of it and express Mm. it because that's the only way that she knew how to 
Um, but I guess the irony, the sad irony is that, you know, it, it consumed her um, and it became out of her control. And that's what tends to happen for a lot of individuals. Like, you know, one of the, one of the big um, stigmas around eating disorders is this idea that, you know, once you realize you have a problem, you should just be able to change, right? That's like the first step. Okay, this isn't, this isn't okay. I have a problem. Just I'm just going to be able, yeah, just stop. Just stop doing it. Just, yeah. just just yeah. eat a meal, you know, just yeah. eat. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, if you have anorexia, just, just go eat a massive bowl of macaroni and cheese, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, if you're struggling with binge eating disorder, just stop binging or replace binging with eating carrots or drinking water or some other bullshit, you know, idea. Or, you know, if you're binging and purging, just stop, right? You know, you have a problem, so just stop. And it's so problematic because it's not that easy because yes, at some point there may have been a choice to try and lose weight or to use food in a very particular way to help you cope may have been some sort of choice involved in that but ultimately you know it's it the physiological and the psychological changes that happen after prolonged periods of starvation for example or prolonged periods and I I need to say as well that like with binge eating disorder and bulimia as well there is often periods of restriction and there's often energy deficit involved in those um, disorders as well. Um, And with those behaviors, it's not as straightforward as just, you know, just always binging or Mm. quote unquote, just always binging and purging. There's often like a series of behaviors that kind of come into play and restriction features across the spectrum for most people. And, um, you know, the physiological changes that happen with like, you know, hormones within your body and within your mind um, make it very, very difficult to stop doing those behaviors, even when you realize that it's that it's a problem or that it's hurting you. Um, And for anyone who's interested, um, a really, really great example of that is. Um, a study that was done in like the 1940s by Ansel Keys um, and his colleagues uh, known as the Minnesota experiment and that's still I mean it would never ever be able to be replicated because it's highly unethical but it really just highlights how you know what can happen when somebody goes even on what was back then referred to as like a semi-starvation diet which is admittedly considered like from a calorie perspective a lot more than what a a number of people are being encouraged to eat on certain diets nowadays Um, and how it started off with them just engaging in this experiment. And as the experiment progressed, they became more preoccupied with food. They became less interested in activities of daily living. They became preoccupied with exercising and wanting to exercise. And some of them started having, you know, really disturbed thoughts and engaging in really disturbed behaviors and that's just you know starting off from a semi-starvation diet um for science I found that we had a really good chat about this where people wanting to like discuss it further we spoke to Caroline Duna who wrote the fuck it diet all about this experiment and she explained it so well she really um touched on elements that I hadn't heard be explained before and I just found it really interesting that like people that the men partaking in the study started um, putting, instead of like putting up pictures of like pinup girls at the time on their wall, they started put, putting up pictures of food on their wall. Yeah. And we discussed in that, in that episode um, of how, and I think this is really interesting and also maybe 
a kind of a, a red flag in terms of how we relate to food um, from a health perspective is when we become self-proclaimed foodies because we become obsessed with like looking at all these foods that we may be restricting ourselves from. Yeah. Um, and I know that in my experience of my, of feeling, um, you know, like I said, I strongly identify with orthorexia and in that time I, my Instagram handle at my Instagram, the whole thing was food. I was making recipes. I was, you know, the whole, my whole identity was like, I make healthy recipes girl because um I was restricted in some way so that became a huge focus on like the food I could have and that became a strong part of my identity and so once again part of that unlearning and healing came from um yeah not being the foodie girl (laughs) you know and and Caroline speaks about this in 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 her episode and in her book about how she actually became fairly disinterested from food through her recovery because um because it wasn't so this like thing she put on a massive pedestal all the yeah. time it just became very neutral and normal for her and I found that really interesting um and is an interesting perspective on this and on how we view food when we're in restriction yeah it's I mean it's the scarcity mindset right yeah. um and scarcity doesn't have to be physical and environmental mm. it can be psychological as well so for example telling yourself I shouldn't be eating this or this is the last time I'm going to eat this triggers the exact same kind of psychological mechanism psychological response that really I mean this this is probably and I'm, this is probably huge speculation but I would I would assume this is probably the scarcity mindset is probably one of the reasons why we evolved as a species actually beyond hunters and gatherers because back then we didn't have regular access to food before agriculture, right? Mm. And so we would go through periods of abundance with food, let's say in the spring and the summer, when we have lots of you know vegetables and fruit that we can pick and lots of animals around and stuff like that, um, and that we have access to. And then in the winter, when it's colder, we don't have access to that, right? Mm. So what keeps us, what kept us going through the winter when we don't have when we don't, when we didn't have access to those foods. And I think, you know, developing our brains, developing a mechanism to help us seek out food and become almost preoccupied with it probably would have meant that like we maybe tried things that we otherwise wouldn't have, um, that we then figured out that we could eat, or it might've meant that like, you know, we continued pursuing a certain path, um, for longer than we might have otherwise, because, you know, we had maybe a preoccupation with seeking out food. So, I mean, that's just, that's, that's something that really interests me. Um, and I think from, yeah, from a psychological standpoint, like as soon as you tell yourself you're, you're not allowed to do something or you're not allowed to eat something or you shouldn't be eating something, you're putting it up on a pedestal and you're making it way more, uh, appealing than it might otherwise be. And I think there there's some research to suggest as well that it kind of changes the scarcity mindset and the idea of scarcity might even change the kind of way that we taste food as well. Mm. Um, and so it, it, it actually makes it way more appealing, which is anyway, and then I can go off on a tangent about how like food addiction isn't real um, <laughs> stemming from that. <laughs> Well, can we touch on that? Because I yeah. had an in, I had an interaction on my Instagram maybe last week 
with someone who was strongly proclaiming that sugar is addictive and and telling people in my comments that they should be going keto and obviously I took a massive offense to that and mm. and felt like I needed to respond and my response was that was the more you restrict the more you put um sugar on a pedestal the yeah. more you will feel um, and the more you don't trust yourself around that food the more you will feel out of control when you are exposed to sugar and yeah. therefore you will feel like it's you you don't know how to eat it and you do eat large quantities and amounts because you feel like this is your only window of opportunity to eat that food and enjoy that food and so you go all in so I mean it's like I mean we're coming up to Christmas right and we see Christmas as this whole like oh it's over Christmas I can eat whatever I want and so we do feel like we eat so much because we don't allow ourselves to have those food those foods any other time of the year right yeah so and particularly sugary foods so we feel like we must eat all the desserts everything we can get our hands on because it's not allowed any other time and you know therefore this feeling of feeling like oh I'm clearly addicted to this and you know I'm it's a compulsion to eat this I think is understandable mm-hmm. um and the feelings of feeling out of control around the food may feel very real but I would love to hear your take on why that may not be a complete truth I think you've basically covered you've covered most of it beautifully <laughs> actually um I think you know it's it's again the irony is the more we try and control food the more out of control we're going to feel with it um and you know, the scarcity mindset, as we've been talking about, you know, basically puts food up on a pedestal and changes the way that we relate to that food, changes the way that we behave around it, makes it more likely that we're going to eat past the point of comfortable fullness with that food and feel out of control with it. But the flip side is, is which is amazing and which is what I, you know, I love seeing this with my clients is the habituation process mm. and it's really 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 scary when you come out of dieting and restriction to um to think okay in order for me to feel more in control with this particular food I need to give myself regular access to it that is something that is really scary for people I think mm-hmm. because and again I won't I know we don't have time to kind of get into it, but I think it's not as simple as I will say it's not as simple as just, okay, I feel out of control with chocolate. So I'm going to let myself eat chocolate every single day. Um, I think, you know, we need to kind of like ease into it and build up our confidence and start with something that, you know, you feel a little bit less quote unquote addicted to, or a little bit less out of control with so that you start to learn what that habituation process feels like and see that it is possible and work your way up to um to kind of eating the chocolate for example um and that's something that I would encourage doing with somebody who has some training in intuitive eating um that can help with the nuance around that but um the habituation process is amazing because you know often see I love my client stories when they come in they're like you will never guess what happened you know I I opened up my cupboard and I saw for example like a bag of bagels that had mold on it and you know this might be somebody who has that who we've been working around like um eating bagels regularly because it was a fear food um and so for them to kind of open up their cupboard and go oh my god I totally forgot that there were bagels here is just amazing and it's such an aha moment 
for, for folks to kind of go, oh, I see, you know, like I, when I give myself regular access to these foods, they lose their power. And it's not about not eating the bagels, right? Because that's not what the intention is. You don't want to get to a place where you just naturally don't want to eat bagels, but you, because that's a very diet mentality perspective, but you want to get to a place where, like you said before, it's neutral. A bagel is just a bagel. You could have a bagel, you could have a bowl of cereal, you could have something else, um, but you're not sitting there going, oh my God, I've got bagels in my cupboard and I need to eat them all. Um, so it's different. I think the day I was able to keep Ben and Jerry's in the freezer and there be like not need to eat it that very day and not also not need to eat the whole thing or like even like I must finish this and being able to just to um and as you mentioned before about the idea that when you allow yourself the things that it does taste different like the things that you thought you really loved like personally like with the Ben and Jerry's example I realize I don't like Ben and Jerry's as much as I thought I did yeah. I like Ben and Jerry's because I saw people on Instagram who were also in a restriction mindset, you know, go, wow, this is epic. Look at this. And everyone was like, this was a, this was a very Instagrammy thing. I prefer Haagen-Dazs. And I realized I prefer Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And I prefer like, I don't like, I don't, I, I don't know, it tastes different. It tastes, it's, it's more creamy. Yeah. And I really like that. But I also know that I can have those things and, I don't have to eat them. And another thing for me was granola. Yeah. I used to tell myself, oh, I can't have granola in the house. (laughs) And the day I could have granola in the cupboards and that'd be totally cool. I think that was a real, like you say, that's a real like moment. That's a real milestone in, in healing, I think. Um, Because it's like, oh, I can do this and I'm I'm getting better. And I think, um, yeah, it's something to, to work towards. You mentioned intuitive eating, and I know you are also a certified intuitive eating counsellor as well. So, you know, with people listening to this who feel that um, they want to get some sort of help, and I think there may be different things for different people will need different things, but for those who feel like they want to um, start um, working on their relationship with food in particular, and, you know, as you say, working on habituation and and doing this process but feel like they don't they don't know how to do it alone mm. um do you recommend intuitive eating I'm gonna I'm gonna presume yes yeah but um how do you recommend people seek out that help and maybe we can just dispel a myth about like who this work is for and who this work isn't for because I think once again even with intuitive eating people are like oh but that's not for me because I'm you know, not X, Y, Z. I personally believe intuitive eating counselling is can be for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts on on how to seek help and who may be the right person for that person to seek. Absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, and if, you're, if you're looking, if you feel like your relationship with food could uh, benefit from intuitive eating or if you feel like you're leaning towards your relationship with food kind of being taken over by rules or regulations or anxiety or fear then absolutely a certified intuitive eating counselor is brilliant and the thing with intuitive eating counselors is that we all have kind of different backgrounds and so you know I'm I'm a psychotherapist but I'm also an intuitive eating counselor so the way that I work is an intersection of of those those two things 
Um, but a lot of kind of nutritionists, dietitians are also certified intuitive eating counselors. And so it's just, you know, it depends on who, who you want to work with really and which way and which way you want to go with it. Um, I think if you have a sense, I mean, I'm generally speaking, there's usually underlying, um, underlying stuff below the relationship with food. Um, but you know, if you're not ready to kind of tackle that, or if you feel like you don't have a kind of clear idea yet of what that looks like for you, then, you know, absolutely go find somebody who's an intuitive eating counselor who has kind of like a nutrition degree, for example. Um, and, you know, because of their training, if there's, if there's a point at which stuff starts to surface that goes beyond the relationship with food, then they'll put you in the direction of a therapist. They'll kind of nudge you towards therapy as well. Mm. And I think it can be, you know, it, it can be pretty amazing I found it really rewarding, actually, to work with, um, work alongside dietitians and nutritionists um, in the kind of intuitive eating process um, and forming kind of a multidisciplinary approach because, and again, I have to say, you know, it's, only certain people can kind of afford that, obviously, because, you know, it's, it costs money and not everybody has, um, can access that. But, you know, it is, and there's, there's other ways around it as well. I mean, um, Evelyn Tribley and Elise Resch, the creators, co-creators of Intuitive Eating have books that are super helpful. Their workbook, I think they're probably working, I think they might be working on the second edition of their workbook. I could be making that up. I know. And I think Evelyn's just coming out with a new book. For adolescents, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, a workbook for for adolescents they've just come up with their second version of the intuitive eating book as well um and then you've got you know people like Laura Thomas who released her book and her workbook is coming out as well at the beginning in January I think Mm. um which is you know it's intuitive eating but it's you know with her with her spin on it obviously um and there's lots of you know great little exercises in there as well that you know you can that people can kind of get started with Um, but then, you know, as always, if it feels like too much, it feels like something that you can't feel safe doing on your own, absolutely find a professional who can support you. Um, you can look up intuitive eating counselors on the intuitive eating website. Um, there's a directory there. And, um, if you're looking for somebody who has experience with eating disorders or disordered eating, um, Beat, the, the registered charity in the UK, has a great um, kind of, what do they call it? Database. Well, basically, yeah, basically a database search engine. So you can find um, individuals there. Then there's also, um, if you're looking for a therapist or a counselor, things, um, websites like the counsel- counseling directory are fabulous. Uh, because you can put in your postcode and you can look for a therapist near you. I mean, obviously things are different because of the pandemic. So um, most therapists are online, which makes it more accessible, I think. Um, So you don't necessarily need to find somebody in your postcode. Um, But that's a great way to start. I mean, if you want to find somebody in your area um, and kind of narrow it down that way. Um, But if you're looking for a therapist, I always recommend to people that... um, Try and think about, how do I explain this? Try and think about what you're looking for from therapy. 
So are you looking to, are you looking for tools and techniques that are going to help you cope? And do you want somebody that will give you some kind of practical homework, for example, to take home with you? Because if that is something that you're looking for, then you're going to want to look for uh, a cognitive behavioral therapist, acceptance and commitment therapist, um, you know, the kind of behavioral therapies are more kind of hands-on and they also tend to be shorter term work as well so for cognitive behavioral therapy generally speaking you get like a set number of sessions um, which some people find incredibly helpful um, because then they know there's a start and middle of finish and that works really well for them Um, but if that way of working doesn't appeal to you or if you find it kind of too rigid then looking for a psychotherapist who's going to help you kind of make connections between past and present um, or somebody who has an eclectic kind of mix an integrative therapist will also um, you know might draw because I consider myself an integrative therapist so like I draw from like intuitive eating and relational stuff and acceptance and commitment therapy and compassion focused therapy um yeah and so I would kind of yeah ask yourself the question what am I looking to get from this and what works like what how do I learn what works for me um and then kind of you can kind of narrow down what type of therapist you're looking for and don't be afraid to kind of google as well um and do some research on the different types of of therapies because that can be that can be super helpful. And from there, you can narrow down your search to somebody in your area who is a behavioral therapist or somebody in your area who is a relational psychotherapist. Um, I Sorry? I was going to mention health at every size and yeah. whether those they are um, working in that paradigm and um, how to know if someone is working in health at every size or not and um, and who may benefit I think it benefits everyone but um specifically for people um who don't who because we know in in therapeutic environments like you can still experience weight stigma you can still experience those thoughts um because like therapy is not immune to biases either Mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts and recommendations on how to find a Hayes informed therapist um it's tricky because I have met like I've met some amazing therapists who wouldn't necessarily like put on their website that they're haze aligned or wouldn't necessarily kind of be on the ASDA website mm-hmm. um uh for example um on, on the registry there so um it's it's a little bit tricky but if you are looking for somebody specifically haze oriented um check Instagram uh, a lot of therapists nowadays have Instagram accounts and generally in the little blurb at the top will say things like, you know, haze aligned or non-diet. Non-diet is can also be um, code sometimes for haze, not always, but sometimes. Um, that can be another kind of keyword to look for when you're, when you're looking for somebody. Um, Do you also recommend people to kind of have consultations with therapists ask questions and so in the question you can say like do you what are your thoughts about health at every size or you know what are your thoughts on diet culture for example and just gauge gauge the temperature of the therapist and whether you feel like they may get where you feel like you need to go 
Yeah, 100%. I think um, something that I always tell my new clients and I tell anybody who's looking for a therapist is just because you choose a therapist and just because you decide to go meet that person or have a consultation session with them doesn't mean that you have to work with them. And I think it's so, so, so important that when you meet somebody and you're talking to a therapist that you feel a connection with them and you feel like you can be safe enough to talk about what you need to talk about. And a big part of that from this framework is is trying to kind of gauge what their stance is on uh, weight loss and weight stigma. Because basically health at every size is, you know, it's it's looking at the whole person and it's taking weight out of the equation Mm. um and you know sadly I think like you said earlier there's there's a lot there's a lot of individuals um who work within the kind of counseling and and psychotherapy community who are not immune to weight bias nobody's immune to it um Mm. you know even somebody like myself who has, has done the intuitive eating work and somebody who is health at every size aligned, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I was immune to it, right? You know, I have to consciously be aware of, mm. of, of my, my own previous bias and I've worked really hard to untangle it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't pop up sometimes, right? So I think a, a haze professional isn't, isn't going to be perfect necessarily in that respect in that respect but they will have done their work they would have done work to kind of untangle and understand their own um, bias around weight and health and food and chances are they've done a big chunk of work on their own relationship with food and and their body as well throughout it um so that's that's basically what health what what you're looking for what you'd be getting with health health at every size somebody who's probably not Hopefully, I really hope so. Somebody who's not going to sit there and if you show up and say, I think I, I think I ha- might have, you know, um, a problem with binging, somebody who's not going to sit there and go, oh, well, you know what I find really helpful when I really want to eat something bad is sit down and drink a glass of water, right? Which is like, yeah. <laughs> I've heard a lot of horror <laughs> stories. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for those specifically seeking eating disorder treatment, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the UK, people are able to go to their GPs. Um, I don't know if that's a universal thing. I know we have people listening in America and all sorts as well. Um, but is that the best starting point, going to a GP and, and getting referred? Generally. Um, but also look up charities and organizations in your area. Um, because, so for, for example, BEAT is, um, you know, has a whole bunch of information on there on how to seek support. And, um, and there, there will be similar organizations in different countries. Um, so kind of doing a little bit of research to find eating disorder organizations and charities and stuff like that. And you can generally find information through there. Um, the problem with reaching out to GPs that, that I've often heard from people is, um, again, and that's, I think it's just, the fact that, you know, a GP hasn't received an enormous amount of training on eating disorders. And so they, so they might not, they might be, they might be perceiving things through the lens of like, oh, does this person tick the clinical boxes? Mm -hmm. If they don't tick all the clinical boxes, so somebody with anorexia who isn't, you know, below a certain BMI threshold, they might get turned away. And this happens a lot, actually, which is really sad, but they might get turned away because, you know, they don't tick all those boxes. Um, so that's the only thing that 
I will I will say, and it's not a criticism to GPs. I mean, they, you know, there's some really brilliant ones out there. It's just something to be mindful of that, like, if you are somebody who has been turned away for a reason like that or for not taking the clinical boxes, that doesn't mean that you're not sick enough. It doesn't mean that you don't deserve help or support. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it might mean that you need to advocate for yourself strong like even more strongly or that you might need to find or ask to speak to another GP or you know involve somebody else to kind of come into the appointments with you to support you and kind of advocate for you um to really get it across that like no I want help and I need help and I need you to listen um and again it's not it's not um, a criticism of GPs. It's just the way the system works and, and training and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, if if you've been turned away, definitely don't take that as a sign that you're not sick enough. Um, take it as a sign that, you know, it's the system and there's issues in it, understandably. And, you know, if you can advocate for yourself, you know, try as hard as you can to kind of push for it because you deserve support. Jenna, I'm going to list, um, you know, a few uh, resources you mentioned below um, in the show notes yeah. um, below you mentioned, and I'll list them in the below. People hearing this, if you look below the title of the episode, <laughs> um, there will be information there and you'll find links to those things, um, whether it be looking for a therapist or looking for um, help and support with an eating disorder. Where Jenna, where can people find you, find more about your work? Um and yeah how can they support you um i'm on instagram so you can find me on instagram as jenna daku d-a-k-u um or freedom to be therapy we have a we have an account for um freedom to be therapy as well um and they're you know a little bit different so it depends on on what you like what you fancy you can follow us there or follow me there um i'm on twitter but i'm not very active admittedly on twitter and um you can reach out to us on um through our website which is www.freedomtobetherapy.com it's been a real pleasure and i so appreciate your insights and your time and i hope we covered as much as possible so thank you so much thank you for having me And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening, as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 